Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Indeed we do. I'm Alec Hogg coming to you from the Biz News head office in Johannesburg. Well, this is where the head office is, isn't it? Stuart Lohman, our colleague. It mm-hmm. is at the moment, Alec. I know we've got some future plans, but Joburg is where we are at the moment. Obviously with our nice little virtual studio in the Cape Town, in the Cape Town area. I don't know. Nadia, you're not in Cape Town at the moment, are you? No, I'm visiting all of y'all in Gauteng. <laughs> Yeah, so she's she's from what used to be called the Northern Transvaal. Uh, in other words, P-Town. Yeah, it used to be. Yeah, I just the, say I'm a volley. Yeah, Barberton's yeah. a Modelifis, you know. That's, <laughs> that's what you guys, yeah. It's quite funny, actually. Northern Transvaal's rugby uh, used to, instead of being a bull, it used to be a flower. Can you imagine the transformation <laughs> yes. that, that, that they would have felt in those days? Mm, yeah, but they still play. They still played like bulls even those days. Anyway, you're in the virtual studio, as is Justin Rowe Roberts. Nice to see you, Justin. I had probably the most informative discussion yet on COVID uh, with Emil Stipp a little bit earlier. He's the chief actuary of Discovery. Stuart Lohman, you'll remember that recently we've been talking about this and Wondering, and hang on, if Emil says that between 70 and 80% of South Africans have had COVID already, then isn't that herd immunity? So why do we all still have to go and get vaccinated? Well, look, I heard a bit of that discussion earlier, and I, I suppose he speaks about what the vaccine actually can do for you as an individual. Um, and I, from what I gathered, the herd immunity is a non-event um, as we go forward. Yeah, I, I found it fascinating. Herd immunity says forget about it. And the way I'm not going to spoil. There's no more spoiler alerts. Let's just. It really is an interview worth listening to, and we'll be um, talking to him after we hear from David Shapiro, who today spoke with uh, Bronwyn Nielsen. Uh, Dave, did, uh, I mean Dave, David Shapiro. Uh, did you manage to pick up any of that, Stu? Uh, not really of the interview itself, Alec, but I, obviously I used to work with Bronwyn, and I know she picks some good nuggets from the people she speaks to. So I look forward to that interview. It's really lovely to have Bronwyn Nielsen as part of our team. She is an icon here in South Africa as uh, one of the, well, long-standing television broadcasters and now working with us here on the Power Hour. Lovely to have her with us. Also coming up tonight is an interview from the UK, Stu, from our colleague uh, Linda van Tilburg. Alec, that looks at the red list, um, obviously, that the UK has on South Africa as a destination and what it's costing. And there's a petition going around from South Africans to try and get it reversed because the country really does need those British pounds, as they say. Indeed. Okay, so what are the business community reading on business.com today? A lovely piece done by our colleague Justin Roberts around the NASPIS uh, share buyback, Alec, and what it's actually cost shareholders. He puts it at a plus 20 billion rand that's been lost with the share buyback program from the NASPIS process table. Excellent story, Justin. Uh, did it take you long to work all the numbers out? It did take me a while, Alec. There were a lot of buybacks over around seven months, so the calculations in itself were quite complex. But yeah, the figure that I came to was $20.7 billion in shareholder value lost, i.e. double the size of what Imperial is getting bought out for. So if they hadn't done the share buybacks, 
Now, I suppose shareholders would have been 20 billion rand better off. That's what they overpaid in the shares that they bought back. Exactly. A capital allocation mishap. Shareholders would have been much happier with that money as dividends in the pocket, Alec. Well done in doing those calculations. Stu, uh, what else are the top stories on business.com? Um, from the US, Alec, the Food and Drug Administration um, has just lab- labeled the Ivermectin as a non-sort of use for COVID. Uh, that was done over the weekend in the US. And then the story that ran over the weekend was the Casa Semenya one, um, which from our partners at the Wall Street Journal on her banning the testosterone levels uh, was actually overturned literally two weeks post the Tokyo Olympics. So she was un- unable to sort of race the 800 meters and hold on to her gold crown from 2016, Ali, which is very sad. And it's a bit of a sham, unfortunately. It's terrific, isn't it? The, you have a research report done in 2018 by the, is it the British Sports so, Science yeah. Journal. World Athletics Body as well was, was also involved there. And supported by or, mm-hmm. or sponsored by the World Athletics Body. It then says that testosterone is giving so much of an advantage to certain people. They had to adjust the levels. Then they come out now, after the Olympics, to say, oops, sorry, uh, it didn't actually give people like Casta Semenya an advantage. So she's lost a gold medal. Oh, and the, the ability to sort of fight, you know, re, re, hold on to it. Uh, so it's very sad for her. And I'm sure there'll be lots of ramifications going forward. But let's see what happens there. Like, it's not great. Well, it's surprising to me that the rest of the country hasn't picked up the story and uh, and been running aggressively with it. But I'm sure uh, in newsrooms somewhere, they're going to find out about that in a little while. Uh, Nadia, what's uh, happening on our YouTube channel? So, yeah, talking about Emil Stip, the... Uh, Thursday's flash briefing, which we covered uh, the report by him, which he estimates like as many as four out of five South Africans have had COVID. That flash briefing has done very well. It also covered the opening of vaccination to all of those above the age of 18 in South Africa. And another video that I also particularly enjoyed was a summary of your interview, Alec, with Magnus Haystack of Brentest Wealth Management, which is a great explainer of the way that the amended regulations of retirement annuities affect those who plan on immigrating. And then the third video is the live stream of Justin, your interview with the CEO of BritBox, potential competitor to Netflix, which he did on Friday. And was she in South Africa? Because I know she isn't based here. No, Rima Sarkhan, she's based in the UK. The on-demand streaming services has to be one of the most exciting industries around, Alec. And it's just so nice for us as consumers when we've got Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney+. Plus. Okay, multi-choice, we wouldn't put into that uh, conversation. And now we've got BritBox coming here at competitive prices and a great offering. BritBox is amazing. We've been watching uh, Dr. Foster, which is a, a, I suppose the Brits have seen it and they say, oh, that's old news. Anyway, you can get it on BritBox now and uh, it really is riveting. The the Brits, they certainly know how to do their uh, when they when they put their hands to film, Whew, it can be excellent. Stu, uh, and what are our audience or our community listening to in our podcasts? Like I was going to say, the Brits also know a thing about comedy, but that might just be a personal choice. <laughs> On the audio side, Shal uh, Bwerti does the weekly potroy, uh, sort of been very well listened to. Alec, he speaks to Willem Herzog, and they look at York Timber as an investment. Uh, in English or Afrikaans? It's Afrikaans. Afrikaans, yeah. 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 Moise. No, it, it, it does well for us. And we know there's a big part of the community does sort of like to consume audio in their home language. So it's very good for us. The other one from June, it's still running very well, is uh, the interview with Marc Giraudot looking at vaccine and COVID, uh, COVID vaccine immunity and sort of natural immunity, Alec. Uh, so that's actually, Nadia did that interview in June, which I 
it's fantastic to listen to. But I mean, with the Emil thing as well, it's quite interesting to see where you sit now in terms of the. It's all becoming a lot clearer, yeah. which is great. And then Magnus's piece on the Pension Funds Amendment Act uh, with the immigration, that's also still been very well listened to, Alex. So. Bride Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bride Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, that means that we are now going to find out what's going on in the news in the market, starting with Nadia Swart. South Africa plans to extradite former Mozambican finance minister Manuel Chang to his home country rather than the U.S., where he also faces corruption charges, according to two people with knowledge of the matter. Interpol is working on the case and Chang's extradition could take place in the coming days, said one of the people who asked not to be identified as the South African government has yet to announce its decision. He's been held in a prison outside Johannesburg since being arrested in December 2018 on charges related to a $2 billion sovereign debt scandal while South Africa considered the request from Mozambique and the U.S. The Financial Sector Conduct Authority has suspended the exchange license of ZAR-X on Friday. The suspension resulted from ZAR-X's non-compliance with Section 81A of the Financial Markets Act, read with Regulation 8 and 43.2 of the FMA regulations, which relate to the liquidity and capital adequacy requirements of an exchange, the FSCA said in a statement. We don't take this regulatory action lightly, given its impact, FSCA Commissioner Unati Kamlana said in a statement. Our view, however, is that this is a necessary step to safeguard market integrity and the issue and the interest of issuers and the broader investing public. This is the cornerstone of our mandate as the FSCA. ZARX was launched five years ago, the first new stock exchange in South Africa in 58 years. The exchange was established after new legislation opened up the market to new competitors to the JSE. Woolworths will no longer have a CEO for its SA operations after the current person in the role, Zyder Rylands, is stepping down after leading the division for six years. The retailer announced on Monday morning that Rylands was leaving her role as Woolworths SA CEO and as executive director of Woolworths Holdings Limited due to personal circumstances. The group has reviewed its leadership structure for WSA and will not retain the role as it seeks to streamline its operating model. The retailer said that Rylands agreed to defer her planned early retirement to remain with the group until 2024. Sure, Etienne Nell with Zarex. Uh, Stuart, we know him uh, quite well, having seen him uh, in in uh, recent times, and that's quite a hit. No, it's uh, not. It's, you're looking for competition in that space, Alex. It's mm. not good for consumers either. Um, but so there are others. Is there's Four AX, yeah. our partners, uh, and then uh, Anthony Walmart's. Singular systems, mm-hmm. they've got one as well, so there are a few still around, uh, but not, yeah. uh, and of course, 2AX as well, which is the biggest of, of all of yeah. the challenges, anyway. And uh, it's interesting that Mozambican story the Americans want this guy in America, <laughs> it's two billion dollars, it's a, a the, the tuna, tuna bond bombs. scandal, and the Mozambican people were ripped off, but now he's going back Excellent. to Mozambique to be tried by the people who did the ripping off. Crazy, anyway. All right. I'm sure there's there's something happening <laughs> behind the scenes. Justin, no comment, but uh, tell us about the markets. The JSE All Share Index was up at 66,800. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 19 cents to the dollar, 
20 rand 81 cents to the pound and 17 rand 82 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,790 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back around 28,500 rand. Brent crude is well up at $68.50 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will cost you 770,000 rand. No, 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 no. Come now, come now, come now. You've got to say that with a little bit more verve. We know that you're a crypto man. 700 and what? 770,000 rand. It's gone through the $50,000 mark for the first time in three months, Alec. So why didn't you tell us when it was 450 that we were all supposed to pile in there? Because only like how many weeks ago? Six weeks ago? Because I'm not going to pretend like I knew this was going to happen, Alec. <laughs> in the financial news, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange will introduce new caps to help investors rebalance weightings after a stock swap between NASPAS and Process. Effective from September, the capping level for the SWIX All Share Index and SWIX Top 40 Index will fall to 6% from 10%, according to a statement from the BAS. The interim measure is designed to align companies' combined weighting in key indices to prevailing levels. The exchange will seek a permanent solution as quickly as possible after a consultation period following publication of a white paper in August. Bitcoin topped $50,000 for the first time since May as crypto prices continued an ongoing recovery from a disorderly route just three months ago. The revival in virtual currencies has excited the animal spirits of the crypto faithful, putting predictions of $100,000 or more for Bitcoin back in vogue. Others see the volatile asset carving out a wider trading range for now. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, it's time for the market focus here on Biz News. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen. David Shapiro, Sassman Securities, joining us right now. David, it's Monday. Um, a lot of news flow hit us last week. Where do we start with today's discussion? I, it, it's difficult to put it all together. And to decide where to uh, where to go. Look, the one thing that is improving is markets are a little steadier because we had a bit of a scare last week. We weren't quite sure where we were going, particularly with what was happening in Afghanistan, uh, the Fed minutes about um, you know pulling back, tapering. So all of these did shake the market. In fact, there was a lot more bad news uh, than good news. In fact, I'm still struggling to find the good news. But markets held up. And it's a good sign to see this morning, you know, even Asian markets are improving uh, quite a lot. So um, I still think we're going to, I, I don't want to say limp through to the end of the year, but we're probably just going to ratchet up very slowly into, in, into the new year. And the, the other good thing, Bronwyn, is that I think commodity markets have stabilized because you know what we saw on our market as well, a big, big shakeup in commodities, which was also a bit of a scary move. So I'm hoping that that there's some base being formed and the buyers are returning and things are getting steadier. I want to focus on the, on the RAND for, for a while because there was a little panic that set in. And, and, of course, that commodity underpin has always been what's held the RAND relatively strong um, through extensive noise. What is your view? I mean, there are commentators out there saying, you know, we, we could see the dollar rand retracing in, from a weakness perspective all the way 18 to the dollar. Experts at Sassman Securities, what are they saying? Oh, I, I don't think there are any experts in, in currencies. I think you hold yourself out to be an expert. Uh, you're setting yourself up for failure. So I, I, I think that I'm watching it carefully. I'm more of a 
commodity bull than, than a bear. But I say a commodity bull, I think that we will find a level and things will pick up because I, I, I and I'm basing this on the themes that are dominating uh, the global economy world, which is uh, around climate change, or to put it more uh, in, into perspective, uh, against renewal. I think we've got to renew not only the digital economy, not only the environment, but but also the physical economy. So I still think that that when you know th these are market moves after some very strong upward moves, you get the correction. But I think overall, and uh, I'm taking my lead from mining bosses. I think you'll find you know commodity prices steady, and that will still dictate the um, the level of the rand. So I think we had the shock. We're 1535. I would. I would probably um, guess it will you know, level around the, the, the 15 area. I'm not, I'm not a pessimist to the 18 because you know, with that will come some very serious movements in global markets. David, last week we, we saw the, the banks reporting. Obviously, you've done extensive commentary on that. You aren't necessarily a big fan of, of the banks. And, of course, there's also the launch of Bank Zero to the public, so competition continues to, to rally in the banking sector. The only bank still to report, though, is First Rand, and that will be coming out run about mid-September. Is there anything that, when you look at the first Rand story, that differs to the likes of ABSA and Standard Bank and Medbank? I don't know it that well. You know, I, I don't analyze it to a point where I can really differentiate to an extent. I must say that most of my investment focus is offshore, but of course I keep a, a very watchful eye on what's happening in South Africa. And, and you've heard me before, I like to look at the macro picture. You know, I'm not, that doesn't mean I don't go to the micro level and look at businesses individually, but I'm still concerned about the macro level. And I haven't seen anything in APSA or in Standard Bank that, that makes me get excited. You know, that shows me, and this is my story, that shows me that businesses are going out there with an expansion, you know, with expansion in mind and going out and borrowing, say, we need money to build new factories, you know, to expand our operations. I haven't seen that. Look, some of the, a lot of the businesses might have already have money. Certainly the mines have. But when that's, that's why banks, that's the purpose of the bank, is really to fund expansion, you know, not to really expand, to, to fund consumption because that's dangerous vending. So I'm still not convinced that we've seen um, any element of that yet, you know. And when that starts to happen, then I'm going to get bullish. And the other story where I do like financials is on the payment side of it. Is and and you know and, and I think we've discussed this before where younger people are changing their attitudes towards banks. So I don't know Bank Zero well enough, but what I do know is that those old legacy uh, relationships uh, are very fragile. <laughs> you know, in other words, when you go into the new generations and millennials. They can change their mind at the switch of a, you know, they can turn over their phones and say, I don't like this bank, I'm going somewhere else. And that, that worries me with the older generation banks and that there's uh, younger people have got a completely different attitude towards investment and towards banking. So you've got to keep an open mind around that. The other 
aspect that I'd like to focus on, David, is the Johannesburg Stock Exchange has been running a series of essay stock picks. So this actually started with your challenge to the CEO of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, Dr. Leila Foree, where you said, come on, let's do something that shows value from a JSE, Johannesburg Stock Exchange perspective. You did a presentation and you chose pick and shovel stocks. In you, you had six minutes, you had to talk about three stocks in the six minutes, and that's where you went to to the pick and shovel stocks. Perhaps worth just elaborating here and, and also on the broader exercise that that SA stock pick exercise has really demonstrated value in the JSE. Six experts, three stocks in the first series, six experts, three stocks in the second series. So effectively 36 stocks that have been discussed as a result of your challenge to Dr. Leila Foree. Well, the, the backdrop to it is, remember, I'm, I'm celebrating my 50th year on the stock exchange. I haven't got to the anniversary, you know, but this is my 50th year. And I've always been a stock man and I've always liked to look at individual companies. And I felt that if you're a young person or even if you're a, it doesn't mean age is actually not, if you want to handle your own portfolio, there's far more attraction in actually finding individual stocks rather than hugging the index and, and playing it safe by going for the index. I'm not saying that you wouldn't have made money, but I think that what this exercise has proved is that outside of the index, outside of the Satrix 40 or outside of the top 40 or so, and so there's a lot of money that has been made. And I chose picks and shovels because I still believe that's the one area of the South African economy where um, a lot of activities taking place and mining is expanding. And, and businesses around that, um, I believed are going to do very well. So I chose, I mean, I chose Barlow's, I chose, um, in, in, um, Invicta. I'm uh, sorry, Hudeka. I kept, I like oh, Invicta Hudeka. as well. And, and, um, AECI who make the explosives of that. So, um, but I think I've been fascinated by some of the other, uh, choices that have come out. But what they've demonstrated, Bronwyn, and I think it's a message that I like to push across, is that, you know, if you're handling your own portfolio, there's plenty of opportunities. It's very difficult for institutions because you need depth. You know, if you're running multi-billion rand portfolios, sometimes in those smaller businesses, it's very hard to find value. But, I mean, time and time again, it's proved that there's uh, just do your research. You don't have to become a, you don't have to be a CFA. You don't even have to be an accountant anything you can you can find good businesses so i you know and i still push that i still push that view david there's another theme that you can weigh in specifically given your vista in boston and the fact that you've got family all over the world is the stop start economy that we're seeing uh, globally. So where one economy starts picking up and then the variant comes into play and then we see a lockdown is this our status quo for the foreseeable future? Weigh in because you have that global perspective, given you know the the different family members that you have all over the world. And it's it's quite incredible to see what what is happening in Australia, who are way ahead of everybody, and had opened up are now in deep lockdown and struggling to get on on top of it simply because they delayed their vaccination program, and it's starting to tell on them. They're starting to get irritable and frustrated. Uh, because of lockdown. So there you are. We had Australia up. Now they've gone backwards. And what, what I've found, I'm in Boston at the moment, 
I found Boston to be very free and open. But there's an interesting incident, and and is that on on the weekend we went to a restaurant in not in the center of Boston, but on, on the outside in outlying uh, outskirts, a very nice restaurant. They never had staff because the varsity students have all you know now going back to varsity, and there were no waiters, and they apologized. The barman actually acted as our waiter. So what's happening now is that, um, you know, when you hear about the shortage of staff, it's very real. Emil Stipp is the chief actuary at Discovery. You've been causing quite a lot of uh, confusion in the marketplace, Emil, and hopefully you can unpack this for us. Uh, first of all, 80% of South Africans have had or been infected by COVID. That's how you're being quoted. Is that correct? So so what I said, Alec, is we estimate between 70 and 80%. So it's in a range, and 80% is the upper end of that range. Um, unfortunately, we can't be exact about it because, uh, you know, not everybody gets tested. So there's always an element of uncertainty where we talk about infection levels, but uh, we think that that's pretty accurate, that range. So where is herd immunity? So herd immunity, it actually, it, I think, is something that we must all forget now. It's not going to happen. Um, and the, the reason for that is that COVID is becoming endemic. So unless you have everybody vaccinated in a population, and unless vaccination or previous infection gives you complete protection against in, reinfection or infection in the first place, you're not going get it, to get it to go away. So the way that one should think about this is that if you've had COVID before, your risk of getting it again is about 20 to 25% if you come into contact with the virus. Okay, that's what our data shows. Even if you're vaccinated, the data emerging across the world is that you have a risk, roughly about 20% of getting infected. But the key is that your risk of going to hospital and dying, it's, it's different worlds. It's completely, completely different if you're vaccinated versus if you're not. So, and that's really what we should look at. So what you're seeing playing out in Europe and many other places in the world now is that when they get to a certain level of vaccination, the country starts opening up. It happened in Holland, happens in the UK, and infections go up. But what we don't see is that deaths go up. So, you know, what that basically means is that COVID with vaccination is, is less harmful than influenza. That seems to be the numbers emerging from the UK. Without vaccination, it's much more harmful. It's about eight to ten times more harmful. And that's really the, 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 what we should expect going forward is that COVID will be around. It will probably not go away. But as long as you're vaccinated, you're basically safe from the, from the bad consequences. Well, that's excellent insights because there is a lot of confusion about this. Just to repack again or to, to re-emphasize it, if you have a vaccination, the chances are that you will get COVID. Everyone seems to going to get COVID anyway. But you will, as you've just said now, the symptoms are going to be not as bad as a as a bad flu. Um, however, right. if you don't get vaccinated, then they will be eight to ten times worse. And of course, that's why people are dying of it. I guess. That's right. Yes. So, so that's the best way to think about it. So, so, but let me just qualify one thing that you said there. It's not that you will get. Um, infected. So COVID is highly contagious. You still have to be coming to contact with it. So remember, either either infections, prior infection or vaccination does reduce the risk of spreading COVID and the risk of getting it. 
what that means is that when the infection levels in the population is low, like it was between our two waves last year, or between wave two and three, your risk of coming into contact with COVID is actually pretty low as well. So it doesn't mean that you will get vaccinated, that will get infected. But if you do, um, you know, then there is a chance that you get infected. And if you do get infected, then if you're vaccinated, your risk of, of ending up in hospital and dying is much lower than what it would have been without vaccination. So what we see in the UK now is that the, the risk is roughly 2 to 3% of what it would, would be had you not been vaccinated. And that's a material difference. That means wow. that effectively it removes the risk for practical purposes. That it, well, it certainly does. Does it? Are the UK hospitals then not being overburdened? Not at all. Yeah, and and what was particularly interesting, if you put the two graphs next to each other, you can see how there's a first wave, a second wave, and then a third wave in the UK when you look at infections. That third wave in the UK was actually higher than it was in South Africa. And then if you look at mortality, at the number of deaths, so in the first wave it went up and down, second wave up and down, third wave it stays flat. Basically, it doesn't even go outside of normal confidence intervals for, for death rates. Whereas in South Africa, by contrast, in the third wave, you see the deaths rising sharply. It's now starting to come down again. But certainly the third wave's impact was very severe in South Africa. Um, whereas in the UK, it's basically almost non-existent. And the difference between the two being the level of vaccinations. That's right. So at the moment, roughly 77.5% of, of all adults in the UK have had two doses. Whereas in South Africa, I think the latest numbers I saw was about 9.7%. So it's still a material difference. Fortunately, from what we can tell in South Africa, at least people over 60, there's a higher percentage of them being vaccinated, but it's roughly 50%. So I think that, I mean, to me, the, the biggest thing we have to deal with is vaccine hesitancy in South Africa. That's the, the big issue. If people, if people don't get vaccinated, that's when you have this continued risk that there will be further waves, that hospitals will get crowded up and that a lot of people will die. Literally, the only protection we have against it at the moment is vaccination. But, but what if 80% or let's use the, the, the lower number, 70% of South Africans have been infected already. Surely that yeah. gives them some kind of natural immunity towards getting COVID. It does. But let, let me, I'm pulling out my calculator now. So let me, let me tell you what I'm calculating. So, so what you have to, to bear in mind is that as, as is happening now at the moment, the, the variants emerging become more and more contagious. Okay, so that's the real thing to be to worry to be worried about. So let's say um, that, for argument's sake, thirty percent of the population is is still vulnerable. What you need that R factor of the new variant to be is roughly three point three. Okay, and what that means is, if it hits that point, then effectively it starts spreading spreading again. Then you get a fourth wave; it starts increasing. Mm-hmm. Now the crucial difference there is as is in the third wave now, South Africa versus UK, people are vaccinated, their risk is much lower. So then you don't get the, the, the curve developing in terms of deaths. If people are not vaccinated, then it does happen. So if people had COVID before, they do have a lower risk of getting reinfected. 
as I said, between 20 and 25 percent risk of reinfection, which means that you know 75 to 80 percent protection against reinfection. But for those people who do get it and who haven't been vaccinated, then there is still that risk of hospitalisation and death. So what that means is over time these waves will be smaller than what they were when we had no protection. But that's a critical thing. It's a race against time. That if we don't get enough people vaccinated, if the R factor is high enough, it breaks through nationally, and then you see that wave emerging again. And by the time it happens, it's too late, right? Then it just it carries on in the population. As we saw in December, as we saw now in, in May and June, effectively we didn't have enough people vaccinated to, to stop that spread from person to person. Okay, just as a as a uh, an amateur, a rank amateur. So please uh, forgive me for this. But what I've read about vaccines is that you it it goes into your body. It teaches your body to fight against uh, whatever you're being vaccinated about, uh, against. Mm-hmm. So you're building up a defense mechanism. Then That's you, right. as as happened with me, I had my first Pfizer uh, shot. Three weeks later, I got COVID. Uh, or tested positive for COVID. It wasn't that bad. Uh, I'd, certainly I'm still here. So it certainly wasn't as bad as many other people have been, have been affected. And I put that down to having had the first shot. But That's now right. that my, uh, presumably my body has now learned how to fight against this virus. So even if I get it again, uh, it's, it's un, well, I'm hoping that it's unlikely that I'll land up in hospital. Is that the correct thesis? That's the correct thesis. The only, the only unknown thing there is how long the immunity lasts. So what we don't know is that if you if you get exposed in two or three years' time, whether you'd still have the same level of protection. Um, and that's why people are talking about booster shots in, in many countries in the world. You'll, you'll see in Israel that they're already starting with booster shots. What I'm hoping is that the science involves, evolves in such a way that, you know, one more booster shot, maybe two would be enough. Otherwise, eventually what it becomes is something like the flu vaccine that you get every year. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the risk group, you just get your flu vaccine, you know that you should get it, and then you have protection against uh, you know, hospitalization and death from flu, um, and maybe COVID becomes something like that. So that's still a possibility. But there is also the possibility that actually the vaccine as it is does give you enough protection. Or alternatively, with one more booster shot, you'd have the protection basically for life or for very long. So I think there's, you know, it's just too early to tell because we don't have people that have been post-vaccination two years or three years. We don't have the data on that yet. Um, but I know that the, the pharmaceutical companies are working very hard on that to make sure that the booster shots, you know, get updated and that they can respond to any sort of variants emerging in the future. But the the picture here is that 70%, like myself, have had COVID, COVID positive in South Africa. Had they been, some of them wouldn't have even known. I think you called it asymptomatic. They wouldn't have even known that they had it. But the other 30% haven't had uh, COVID yet. And if they haven't been vaccinated, they could end up going to hospital and dying. That's That's really the, the, uh, the danger that I suppose we're going into. That's the crux of the matter. And, and as, long as, as long as more people are not vaccinated, the, the barriers in the population are not there. So that means that it spreads more easily. So variants can take hold and they can start spreading again. And that's why I say it's a, it's a race against time. For, for any country in the world, that's 
at the moment a crucial thing. We know that at least for the Delta variant, for what's around in South Africa right at the moment, your best protection is vaccination. I must tell you, Alec, as you know, I live in London. So here life is back to normal. Mm -hmm. I can go to concerts, people go to sport games. Um, people don't even wear, wear masks inside buildings because it's not necessary. It's, uh, you know, some people might still get COVID. They isolate for a little bit, but you don't see the deaths and the hospitalizations. So the, I really do think that that's, that's the only way forward at the moment. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Well, it's welcome to Sean Pierce, who was all over South African television screens last night, Sean, with your appearance on Carte Blanche. I'm uh, just just by way of background, we've been following this whole AfriCrypt story from day one uh, when it was disclosed or alleged uh, that these two youngsters, Raiz and Amir Kaji, and their cryptocurrency business had stolen 54 billion rand from investors. Now, that appears to have been uh, more than uh, a slight overreach. Just uh, by way of background, um, what is it that you do? I'm a private investigator. So uh, we we mandated by the investigators to check the so-called hack that they claim and that they lost investors' money. So you were brought into the whole AfriCrip story when? In April this year. As uh, soon as they sent that letter out, that Ray sent the letter out stating that they had been hacked and people mustn't panic. Investors came to us and we jumped on it immediately. And what do you do in a case like that? How do you start investigating uh, something which which really is uh, pretty complex, I guess, when one thinks about the whole cryptocurrency world? Yeah, it, it, it can be complicated. So what we did was uh, we got cyber IT consultants in and uh, we went through the systems and that to prove or to see if they were actually, in fact, hacked or not. And we proved that they weren't hacked. This was just a scam or exit strategy or whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of hype about it all over the world, and people are calling it all sorts of things, but we believe this was a scam. Did you meet Raiz and Amir Kaji? No, I've never met them. But tell us a bit about them. You clearly would have investigated who they are and, and what they were up to. Uh, so they're young guys, 18 and 21, and they started uh, AfriCrypt years ago, apparently. They're very good with algorithms and software. Uh, and then they started this AfriCrypt trading platform in Bitcoin, lured investors in, they paid money into the FNB bank account promising them Bitcoin and promising to trade Bitcoin for them. Once they had deposited money into the account, there was an email sent back that was a receipt saying, uh, here's your Bitcoin wallet address. Uh, we'll now, we've received your funds. Thank you. We'll now start trading with, for you. 
We checked those Bitcoin wallet addresses. There's no movement in or out of them. So were they created in the first place? Possibly they were created uh, as a smokescreen to say, guys, there's your Bitcoin wallet address. Oh, wow, I've got an address now. Now they're going to start trading for me. So how much money was injected by investors into this whole scheme? It's very difficult to say. You know, they say 3.6 billion or 51 billion rand, uh, 3.6 billion dollars or 51 billion rand. Uh, we have 35 cases with the Hawks token, 51 million rand. There are other guys in Johannesburg that are up to 100 million rand. We know that over 180 million rand went through the FNB bank account in South Africa. So a lot of people would have traded Bitcoin and transferred Bitcoin from their Bitcoin wallets to the Kaji brothers' wallet addresses to trade because they were offering good returns, 10 and 13%. So the minimum, if 180 million went through the F&B account, would say it's that much. And then, as you say, there was other money that would have been transferred across from other Bitcoin accounts. It, it, it all sounds uh, um, you know, very complicated. Was it or was it just a, 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 a common old garden scam? So they were hacked before in 2019, and uh, they seem to have got away with it. So we don't know if it was their exit strategy or what they were doing, but if you if you look at the scenarios and some of the information that's come forward, they got a Wanawatu passport residency. Why would you get residency in a different country if you knew you were being you were going to be you were going to be hacked? If you were hacked legitimately, surely you should stay in South Africa, sit with your investors and say, guys, hang on. There's the proof. Let us show you we were hacked. Let us try to resolve this. Or if half the money was hacked, let us trade out and get small money back on your returns instead of just disappearing because that makes you look guilty. So what? Uh, where are these guys at the moment if they have these Vanuatu passports? Are they sitting in that little island in the Pacific? No, not yet. Uh, uh, we, we're in contact with the government there to uh, have their residency revoked, as well as we are tracking them. Uh, the last track a couple of days ago was in Dubai. So they're in and out of Dubai, the Maldives, the UK. They're all over the show. Mm. Doing what exactly? Hiding from justice? Party. I don't know what they're doing. They're having a good time on other people's money. So it, it, it's that simple. They've, they claim to have had uh, have their system hacked, but actually they took the money and, uh, and, and left the country. How, how do you do that, though? Surely there's exchange control and other issues to be aware of? You know, so there, yeah, there's a lot of questions that uh, have been asked as well. There's uh, why wasn't SARS involved? Uh, what about your KYC, know your client document, why didn't the bank jump on all these large amounts, these transactions going through their account? We've got some of the bank accounts, and uh, it's crazy, the flow of money in and out, and why weren't the authorities alerted? That's the next big question that's going to come. And the people who invested, the 35 who got hold of you, could you give us an idea of, of the kind of, 
person who's who who put money in. We we were told or have been told that it's primarily people in the Muslim community. Is that accurate? No, uh, not my guys. Uh, there's a couple of Muslims, maybe a handful, uh, mostly uh, businessmen, but from all races. Uh, yeah, so uh, no, my guys are not predominantly Muslim. And how did they hear about the Kajis? Is this a, a a word of mouth kind of marketing, or did they market more aggressively? They had some presentations where they had guys that were very very clever. They they call it the salesperson. So I would you would invest a million with me, and for argument's sake, and we traded out for you, and we've made you one point six million, and we bring you to the presentation that we're going to do. And you say, but there's the guy, and he's living proof that they made money. So obviously you put your money in. It's a long game. They call it the long game. It's not a quick quick fix. It's the long game. So they play you, play you, play you, until they think, well, there's enough in the pot now. Or what We actually don't know what they think. You know, they're 18 and 21. Uh, it doesn't matter how clever they are with algorithms and software technology and that you're still very immature. And what about the family, their father, mother, uh, other people who presumably are either in South Africa, but they would have contacts and connections as well. Have you been able to interview them? The whole family is hiding in Dubai. Uh, We have proof that there's money that's gone in and out of the father's bank account. Uh, that evidence has been given to the police. So you're involved. There's proceeds of a crime. Uh, one of the investors got hold of the father the other day and pleaded to get the sons to pay him back. And in an email, he turned around and he said, uh, I can't get involved in this. I have nothing to do with Africa. Meanwhile, we have proof he has. And that he's still he's with his sons in Dubai. It's funny this Dubai story. We know the Guptas are there, and uh, quite a few other miscreants end up in Dubai. Is it hard to get extra uh, get them extradited from uh, the Emirate? We've just signed a treaty with them, so uh, you know there's a process in every country. Uh, once we obtain a, a red Interpol notice, which we are going gunning flat out for. Uh, we will go and have them arrested. And whether they get arrested and they get bail in Dubai or if they're in Turkey or if they're in Greece or wherever they are, uh, we will find them. Uh, and then they will obviously have the opportunity to fight the extradition order. This is why the police and that, uh, we've been working very much in the background with the police for quite a while. They are solidifying their case to make it 100% so that when that red Interpol notice is issued, there are going to be no arguments in court. They're just going to have to come back. And it can take two, three years, four years for us to get them back. We're going to get them back. There's no doubt about it. They've ruined lives. They've ruined families. People are selling their houses, their cars now. People are unemployed. It's, it's just a joke what these little guys did. They actually have no no morals whatsoever. There was a thing on Broke Boys last night just after Court Blanche feud. And uh, they were asking their friends, did you see us on TV? On, on Broke? Uh, what is Broke Boys? Uh, Broke Boys is a, uh, uh, it's like an Instagram site that they are 
that all these youngsters follow these guys around and there's a video going around of them where they're in Lamborghinis and drinking champagne and smoking marijuana and it's public, it's all over YouTube. And the uh, the way they lived in South Africa, you talk about Lamborghinis, was surely guys of 18 and 21, uh, if you're selling them a Lamborghini, you've got to think twice where the money came from. Well, that's the next question. So uh, they were very good at presenting themselves. Rais is very, is very good and well-spoken. So, you know, whether they were trading in Bitcoin, and in today's economy in South Africa, if a guy comes and he's going to do an EFT into your account, cash for Lamborghini, doesn't matter what salesman you are, you're going to take the sale. You know, it was ridiculous. It was 260,000 Rand for Lamborghini exhaust, 300,000 Rand for spoiler putting onto the Lamborghini, 250,000 Rand for a watch, 75,000 Rand for leather jackets. 495,000 trips to the Maldives, 600,000 trips to Dubai, all on Emirates business class. Have you ever come come across something similar to this in your career? We're busy with another Bitcoin uh, scam. Uh, It's about 200 million, but these guys, they weren't that flashy and they weren't uh, so brazen. And our outlook on, on this other scheme, Embedded Downloads, which is an Irish company, uh, is that when Bitcoin was only about three or $4,000, that they now cash in the Bitcoin and spend the money instead of waiting and hanging on to it. I think it's up to $50,000 now, nearly. Uh, if they had hung on to that, they would have been able to pay the, the people back. There's also criminal cases on that through Ireland. We're waiting for Interpol to give the police an instruction to interview one more guy in South Africa and then a warrant of arrest will be placed via Ireland for the one brother in South Africa and the other brother in Ireland. So these Bitcoin guys, I think they can get away with it, but there's a paper trail and the law is the law. I'm Linda van Today we're discussing a petition that has been launched by SATSA to lobby the UK government to open up travel between the UK and South Africa. SATSA is the voice of inbound tourism in South Africa, and they are urging the British government to re-evaluate South Africa's red list category, which prevents even vaccinated UK citizens from travelling to South Africa. Well, joining me to discuss this is SATSA CEO David Frost and tourism specialist Gillian Saunders. Well, welcome, David and Gillian. Um, how long has South Africa been on the red list? Well, let me kick off and uh, Gillian can join us, Linda, but a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. So um, since the end of December, the UK put us on the red list, which effectively prevents people, particularly South Africans, from traveling through to the UK for sort of leisure purposes. You can go through, I think people have gone through if you had work opportunities, but you've got to quarantine for sort of 10, sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's an onerous quarantine period on the way back in. But equally, that applies to UK citizens coming through to South Africa. And it's a total disincentive to, you know, for anybody to travel, be it for leisure tourism or for, or for any form of sort of business. And the UK is our biggest source market. So pre-COVID, we got close to 440,000 arrivals uh, from the UK. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a particularly massive market for South Africans. 
Our film industry is very dependent on business from the UK. And indeed, you know, there are other aspects of the economy that uh, are contingent on that particular relationship. But Gillian, do you want to come in with some more specific statistics on this? Yeah, so I think I think the main statistic is that every British tourist earns about thirty thousand rand that comes into the South African economy. So I, you know, I've unfortunately forgotten the number, but four hundred thirty thousand, four hundred forty thousand times thirty thousand rand is is billions of rand and many, many, many jobs. And and as well as David talked about the visiting friends and relatives, there's a whole diaspora which is like myself. I'm originally British, although I'm now South African and been here forty years nearly. But we have friends and relatives over there. Uh, so British people who have friends and relatives residing in South Africa. And they also can't travel here, as well as our leisure tourism. And, and a, a good example of how much we're losing would have been, for instance, the British Lions Tour. We would have expected 27,000 or thereabouts Brits to travel here for the Lions Tour. Look, there was also a stadium um, closure thing on this side, but, you know, they wouldn't have come anyhow because the, the quarantine that David talks about is very expensive. It's 2,240 pounds, I think. And it's yeah. extremely unpleasant in very small rooms with a lot of stories about poor food, being treated badly, not getting your exercise options. So... It's really a huge disincentive. It's very expensive. If you think about a family traveling, for instance, you've got ties up by four, or there is a slight discount for groups. It's, it's a massive impact. So, uh, you know, across the board in terms of investment, group events, sporting events, conferences, and leisure tourism, it's a major impact. So you've launched a petition now in the UK, and normally what happens to petitions is if you can get 100,000 signatures, it can be debated in the UK Parliament. So how's the petition um, progressing, David? Well, we've, 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 we've been up and running. I think it's, Julian, I stand to be correct, we're about sort of in our 11th day or 12th day of the petition. And I think at the, at, at the moment we are at about 24,500 signatures that we've obtained 25 yeah 25 now yeah the monday morning update so we're a quarter of the way to getting it getting getting a hundred thousand and we you know we we're fairly confident if we can rope in elements of the diaspora and speak to everybody who who can who can who can take this onto a sort of far more viral uh platform than we've then we've kicked it off we can get to the hundred thousand uh signatories but we we're progressing a whole lot of other stuff as well. There have been a number of media um, articles that have been written. But essentially, Linda, what we're also doing is posing questions to the politicians, um, bringing to the attention that the science is not being followed here. Their main concern was around the beta variant, which was the predominant variant yeah. in South Africa. But we've subsequently shown that the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is which is the one widely used in the UK, in a, in a very credible, wide-ranging study in Canada, is is totally effective against the beta variant. The other very axiomatic and self-evident point is that the beta variant was seeded in the UK and it didn't spread at all. No. So, you know, the final bit of the jigsaw is is we we're sort of coming well out of the third wave. And the Delta variant is now the predominant variant in South Africa, which is exactly the same as the UK. And in fact, our levels are a lot lower than levels of other countries in which the UK has taken off the red list. So Trillian's also beaten running point in a bit of the science and may want to just add, add something to that. But the main point is that they're not following their own science. So, you know, that's, a, that's another powerful argument we're bringing to the fore. 
Well, currently, South Africa, about 90% of our cases based on the genome sequencing that we're doing are Delta variant. And what that has enabled is other destinations like Austria, France, Germany have changed our status. And, you know, they've all got different systems of status, but they've taken us off being a country with a variant of concern to high alert or high risk because we do still have a, a third wave. We aren't out of the third wave. But they are now letting double vaccinated people travel to from South Africa with no quarantine whatsoever, no isolation, no quarantine, no nothing. And so the UK should be following the same science. We, you know, if in the UK you've now opened up totally, people can go to nightclubs, sports venues, they can, um, they can travel within the country and by the way, travel to other countries. Then their Delta variant is very prevalent and they're getting high cases. And in fact, the cases in the UK are growing a Delta variant, but because they're vaccinated they are not going to hospital and they're not dying in the same levels. So what they can do is if they can travel in the UK where the Delta variants will travel in South Africa, when they're double vaccinated, they can also travel to South Africa. It's actually lowers coming to South Africa than traveling in the UK and going to a sports match in the UK. Because we don't have as many cases out there. So they're just not, it, there's not that many rationality in having us on, on the red list. Well, so many pe- people in the UK are vaccinated. Something like 80% of people have had the first vaccination and more than 60% the second one. Why don't they just allow vaccinated people I- into South Africa? They changed their ambulance requirements to double vaccinated people didn't have to isolate when they came home. And the isolation yeah. was self-isolation at home. It wasn't in a hotel. Now, ambulance countries, they can, if they're double vaccinated, they can come back and they're fine. They do have mm-hmm. to do a PCR test and they do have to monitor their symptoms. So that's where we think South Africa should be on the amber list and double vaccinated people should be able to come and go relatively freely with the PCR tests. Um, though those may also be coming super worse for different reasons. So for some reason, we are left on a red list. And if you actually look at what the UK's statements tend to be, they still talk about pizza variant in respect to South Africa, as they did. I don't know if you followed it about three, four weeks ago, they suddenly put France onto a special amber plus list because they said France had high levels of beta. Well, in actual fact, at that point when they did it, France had 4% of sequence cases with the beta, only 4%. And they were largely concentrated in reunions. So the, the UK government is not using the science properly. And they fairly rapidly put France back onto ordinary amber. But they never admitted to, it, to having, done, having made a mistake. What kind of support are you getting from DERCA? What kind of support are you getting from the government? Because they should be lobbying the, the uh, British government. Well, we kicked this off in, in sort of early May, Linda. We waited for a couple of months. We, you know, February, March went by, and there was just an absolute, there was a deafening silence in terms of anybody speaking up for South Africa from any perspective, be it uh, business or government. So we've spearheaded this initiative. And, and it's a, let me just tell you, I mean, you know, engaging in something like this, it's a process. It's not, it's not simply that you do waltz in and see some British politician and say, you know, here are the facts. And then that politician goes, oh, you know, thanks so much. We'll change it tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. So it's the slow process of bringing facts to bear, using the media, understanding who the real decision makers are, and and in a stealthy and, and systematic way, bringing your arguments to bear. So we've spearheaded that. We are broadening our efforts to get the support of far larger organized business. So it's important that they come to the fore and we engaging with our government colleagues and sharing a lot of the information and the traction that we've been able to achieve up to now so that they will have that at their disposal. I mean, essentially, um, you know, 
one of the other things that happened about just over two and a half weeks ago is that the UK took India off the uh, red list. Now, the India was the the home of the Delta variant. They had massive stuff. But it's very apparent that the reasons that they brought to bear went way beyond science, that they had certain, that, that there was a, a, a strong argument put forward by the Indian collective, which included the diaspora, it included business, and it included Indian government to say to the Brits, guys, this doesn't make sense for us and this doesn't work for us. And they were listened to. So there is hope. We've just got to carry on being quite dogged about what we engaged in. Well, thanks for being with us this evening. We look forward to being back in your company again tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.